0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Wednesday, August 16th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump, a Queens-born Manhattanite immigrant-marrying businessman, has officially lost the support of Queens-Manhattan immigrants and businessmen and businesswomen. And the CEO of Campbell's Soup leaves. You knew the president's going to have trouble holding his business council together. Remember how much he said he liked the soup? Thank you, Mr. President. Denise Morrison from Campbell Soup Company. Good soup. But as much as the defections are mm -mm good for those like me who think the Trump agenda needs to be thwarted in every way, the horrible comments he keeps making about Nazis and their equally culpable counterparts, the anti-Nazis, they're just so disheartening. Trump seems to think the false equivalence of Nazi and anti-Nazi, that's going to get him somewhere. But just judging by general discourse, I don't hear anti Nazi being put in the same category as Nazi. You know, oh my God, I used to say lay instead of lie. Stop being such a grammar Nazi, or just as bad, stop being such a grammar anti Nazi. Doesn't work. And to get a sense of the sheer depravity of everything Trump is defending, think about this fact. No one ever has to use any analogies to define how bad. The Nazis and the KKK are, right? So remember with uh, the Google memo, you would say, well, saying that women aren't into tech, well, that's a little like saying blacks lack intelligence. Or, you know, when you call a person of a certain ethnicity, a certain epithet, that's like calling a black person the N-word. But none of that's going on in this case. There's no need to point out, you know, defending Nazis and Klansmen, that's like, no. No, that's not like anything, because the worst you could do is to defend Nazis and Klansmen. They are the worst thing you can only analogize down. And another thing about this Trump press conference, forget any of the racial insensitivities expressed. Just think about this. Has a president ever told the people in such explicit terms that I'm lying to you? Listen to this statement about statements.
2: Because I want to... Make sure when I make a statement that the statement is correct. And there was no way, there was no way of making a correct statement that early. I had to see the facts, unlike a lot of reporters. Unlike a lot of reporters, Nazis were there. I didn't know David Duke was there. I wanted to see the facts. And the facts, as they started coming out, were very well stated. In fact, everybody said his statement was beautiful. If he would have made it sooner, that would have been good. I couldn't have made it sooner because I didn't know
1: all of the facts. And having learned the facts, he made a new statement on Monday, which he was really intent to point out yesterday. He believed less than the statement he made Saturday, right? When he did mention the KKK, the Nazis, when he was clearly reading from a teleprompter, trying to clear that up, it was obviously a lie and he was just telling us that it was a lie he was telling us how great his original statement was and how it didn't need any clarifying the statement that he read afterwards read he didn't believe it he's telling us that he was right all along as he always is and whenever you see him reading from a teleprompter a clarifying statement please think of it nothing more than artifice or a hostage video or a sop to ivanka's upper east side friends Like doing pickups after a taping of The Apprentice. Just reading lines to satisfy the cameras. We haven't even got to the racism. How does it help Trump? Does it help Trump? And that is the subject of today's spiel. Donald Trump, stupid racist or strategic racist? Those are the choices. I'll help you decide. But first... You know, Donald Trump is certainly sui generis, but he's also part of an international trend. You may have noticed I've been devoting many segments on this show to try to understand populism and the elements of populism from an international perspective. So I'm having on an Israeli political scientist who studies policies which go way overboard, overkill, but he argues these policies that go way overboard, that may be a feature and not a bug. Donald Trump is something, I'll say it's something of a cartoon. I mean, it was a reality show character. And his policy prescriptions aren't that nuanced, you know? Like, we don't have a slight uptick in murder. It's American carnage. And illegal immigration isn't certainly something that we should look at. It's a flood, it's ruining America. And of course, Trump's critics and even some of his defenders will say, well, he takes it too far. No, no. It's a strategy. It's a tactic, and it's absolutely what works for him. This, according to Moshe Mayor, Hebrew University of Jerusalem, professor and author of Understanding Trump, Modes of Deliberate, Disproportionate Policy Response. Hi, how are you, Professor Mayor? Thank you very much. Hello. So what were you looking at in uh, your recent paper, Understanding Trump, Modes of Deliberate, Disproportionate Policy Response?
0: Well, in our area, there is a general view that disproportionate policy response, meaning policy overreaction or policy underreaction, is always a policy mistake, mm-hmm. which is due to the uh, cognitive and emotional architecture of a human being. And my view is different. My argument is that at times, disproportionate policy response is not a mistake. It may be a deliberate attempt to change the status quo. If I, for example, refer to Trump's speech in Poland, Trump is basically saying to its audience, are you willing to uh, defend our values at all costs? And he basically proposed that uh, the U.S. should uh, defend its values at all costs.
1: At all costs, right?
0: Now, this the idea. This is rhetoric. Nothing so far in action. But still, this rhetoric is the classic example of policy overreaction rhetoric. Meaning, Trump is signaling us that he is prioritizing policy effectiveness over. A cost consciousness, meaning he is willing to devote political resources and economic resources in order to achieve policy goals. Right. And this is basically the idea of deliberate. Policy overreaction.
1: So let's let's take an example that's not rhetoric, because I'm sure listeners will hear, well, that's what Trump always does. He always overpromises and underdelivers. But let's take an area where there actually have been deliverables, and that is his policy on immigration. So what he said he's going to do is he's going to kick the bad hombres out of the country. But what has really happened with ICE agents is they will often be served a warrant on one of these bad hombres, but they'll come across innocent people people who are here in this country illegally but people who might be the relative of a guy with a drunk driving conviction and it does turn out that there are now massive amounts of deportations more than we've seen and part of it is because even though he said we're only we're going to target the bad ones the net is pretty wide and they're kicking a lot of people out of the country who wouldn't have been kicked out before i think a lot of people would say well that's disproportionate but what would you say about that
0: of course it is disproportionate, it is deliberate disproportionate, mm-hmm. and it is successful, and it will be successful, because the idea of, of, of policy overreaction is to emotionally and cognitively overwhelm the target population, and sometimes also the general public. And this is exactly what Trump is doing, and is very successful at this. Now, the idea of overreaction is precisely what you said. Innocent people are being uh, targeted by mistakes, but that's the idea of policy overreaction
1: another example of this has recently announced a policy towards transgender people in the military. Um, He has, he said that we're not going to accept transgender people. And in fact, if you're transgender, you can't serve. And a lot of people pointed out, well, not accepting transgender people who come in as transgender. That's something that the military is actually considering. It's not really a change of policy, but to go and kick out thousands of people that you already welcomed. That seems disproportionate. But again, you would say that is exactly what he's trying to do to be disproportionate.
0: Yeah, but the point is that a policy overreaction has indeed a subjective uh, component. And mm-hmm. you indeed touched on that. But the point is that uh, one aspect of policy overreaction is measurable. And this is policy overinvestment. Mm-hmm. What, what we are doing here is basically, we are looking for the severity of the policy problem and try to uh, look for indicators for the severity of the policy problem and uh, compare it to the intensity of the policy instrument. And by that, if we look over time, we can gauge the level of uh, or the extent of policy overinvestment. Now, I'm not sure that with regard to the transgender issue in the army, there is a policy overinvestment. Certainly, for uh, some uh, segment of the population, especially those who uh, have uh, liberal uh, views, this sounds, this looks like policy overreaction. But again, this is the subjective element. You see, when we talked about disproportionality of policy, the idea is that the disproportionality of policy carries with it moral baggage, Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is, let's put aside the moral underpinnings of disproportionality. I'm not saying it is not important, it is highly important. But if you look at the American society right now, American society is divided. Immorality for one segment of the society is not immorality for another
1: segment. Right, right. Is this happening now more than it did in the past? By this, I mean, is the idea of overreacting as a good strategy, um, has it become a better strategy than it was in years past?
0: I think that the answer is positive. I think that uh, looking at the declining trust uh, of the general public relating to politicians and political executives make such a strategy a a must for many political executives. The moment there is a problem, a policy problem, serious policy problem, and a political executive is confronting a skeptic public, the political executive has to overreact, overshoot, in order for uh, his or her actions to be perceived as proportionate, for people to believe that the politicians is really serious in attacking in dealing with the policy problems he must overshoot because people are highly skeptic about politicians so what I think is that the phenomena I'm researching the use of disproportionate policy response is only going to increase in use rather than decline and we see it, we are going to see it more and more, Trump is a classic example and Trump is quite successful in its disproportionate strategies. And I believe that his strategies will be imitated by numerous political executives worldwide, not only in times of crisis and in times of public panic. And this is why I think understanding the repertoire of disproportionate policy response We provide a key to understand modern politics in the 21st century.
1: And my last question is, I think Trump specific, he's in crisis, uh, much of it of his own making. And I think you would normally say, it's bad to be in crisis. You don't get an agenda passed. It gets in your way. But is there something about the fact that he is adept at wielding the disproportionate policy proposal that actually... Turns the crisis into something that is in his favor?
0: Absolutely. I think, again, Trump is acting very wisely. You have to understand that some of the crises are engineered by Trump. So, again, leaving morality aside, Trump is playing his cards very wisely.
1: Moshe Maor, professor of political science at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Donald Trump, stupid racist. Or to be really, really fair, Donald Trump, smart racist. No, wait, wait, wait. How could you be a smart racist? I know you're saying that because racism is rooted in ignorance. Okay, if you prefer a different way to look at the question, it's this. Is Donald Trump's display of racial insensitivity and false equivalence and blindness, does that serve his goals or not? You may object to the question. It doesn't matter if his racism is working for him. It has to be called out as racism. In fact, even Fox News commentator Charles Krauthammer said that to Laura Ingram. I always like to think about
0: it this way. Is he advancing his agenda
2: with what happened this afternoon? To critique what he did today on the grounds that it distracts from the agenda or was a tactical mistake, I believe is a cop-out.
1: Okay, fair enough. Moral abomination. Noted. Question, though, does it serve him? Because there are ways racism can serve one's agenda. Steve Bannon would be much less powerful... Possibly not even in the White House if it wasn't for racism. It is the demon wind beneath his gargoyle wings. George Wallace lost a race for governor to the candidate endorsed by the Klan. He vowed to never let that happen again in extremely explicit terms, and he didn't. He full throatedly embraced racism and segregation. He got elected, became governor without racism. George Wallace would be nothing. That was 50 years ago. But let's think of today. Not even in America. Let's go to India. Narendra Modi dabbles in and is a beneficiary of Hindu nationalism. He personally hasn't been as vicious as some other Indian politicians, but he also hasn't distanced himself from, say, his own cabinet ministers who make disparaging remarks or favor forms of religious persecution of non-Hindus. But I would argue this is a bargain, a strategic bargain he's made. He has an agenda which is potentially transforming of the entire economy. And to get this agenda enacted, he needs popular support. He's leaning on Hindu nationalism to boost his popularity, and he's using his boosted popularity to enact reforms. That said, it certainly is playing with fire. And to change the words Hindu to Muslim, we could be talking about Erdogan in Turkey in the beginning of his reign. Now that guy's just a quasi dictator. So, so with that all noted, the question is, is Donald Trump helping himself at all in ways that we in the more liberal and moderate precincts of America can't even fathom? because you've seen the polls, right? Republican polls asked whether African-Americans are worse off economically because most just don't have the motivation or willpower to pull themselves out of poverty. 55% of white Republicans said that was the case. Six in 10 white Republicans say too much attention is paid to race. And while 78% of white Democrats say the country needs to continue to make changes to achieve racial equality, 54% of white Republicans believe the country has already made the necessary changes for blacks to have equal rights. And in fact, Republicans are much more likely to say that whites rather than blacks experience a lot of discrimination. The numbers are 43% of Republicans would say that it's whites who are experiencing discrimination and only 27% of Republicans say it's blacks. And we know that Donald Trump has given up on being the president of all of America. But even as the president of white America, is he helping himself? And I say no, and here's why. The vast majority of white Americans, whether or not they hold racist attitudes, want to see themselves as non-racist. The usefulness of the KKK and the Nazis to a strategic racist is that they provide cover for less overt racist policies. Take over policing. Maybe I would call that racist, but the defenders would say racist. Come on. It's not like I'm a Klansman or anything. You need the Klan and the Nazis out there to justify Your covert racism. And this is why the dog whistle was invented. The point is, it can't be heard by outsiders. Trump may think he's engaging in dog whistling by shifting the blame to anti fascists, but he's really just calling out the dogs in a pretty clear voice. Then there is the issue of Confederate statues.
2: Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down. Excuse me. Are we going to take down are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue cuz he was a major slave
1: owner? Well, one was a treasonous slave owner and the other was the founder of the country. Just throwing that out there. Maybe the traitor part factors in. Anyway, but ask yourself, why would a Trump voter in Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania, whose great grandfather may have been shot by one of Robert E. Lee's troops? Why would he care about Confederate statues? Well, he wouldn't per se, but there is or has been up to this point a salience to Trump defending such things on the campaign trail. They signal to the Wisconsinite who uh, voted for Trump. They signal that this guy, Trump, he's politically incorrect. He takes a bat to the way you're supposed to say things, the way you're supposed to express yourselves. And maybe I need that bat, right? Maybe that's what the system needs for me, the disaffected Wisconsinite to get a job. That is the frame they would be looking at Robert E. Lee veneration through. Like, it's similar to how Trump eats steak with ketchup. I mean, who cares? It does nothing to get the Pennsylvanian some work or the Wisconsinite's kid off opioids, but it does signal, I'm one of you. But in this instance, Trump defending Confederate statues, it stops being read as, well, here's a politically defiant guy, and it just means he's going off on a tangent, racist tangent. It doesn't matter. It's just a tangent that doesn't help the Trump voter in the upper Midwest. It's not getting them closer to a job. I believe this was a bad few days for Trump in every way, morally, strategically, for his political future. But there is a silver lining. And the silver lining is this. While it's true that having the man in the Oval Office be a moral reprobate is bad for America, the fact that more Americans will see him as such actually winds up being good for the country. His declining popularity only serves to isolate and enfeeble him. Tangibly, his words do serve to rouse a small faction of racists. His words killed a woman, essentially. But they've also rallied opponents and they've turned off some supporters at least temporarily. And that is good news. Of course, the whole thing is also bad news. That's what living in Trump's America has come to. And that's it for today's show. The Just was produced by Chris Baruba. Excuse me, fake news. Just was also produced by Mary Wilson, who watched those very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. Daniel Schrader helped produce today's show. And his administration is working every day to deliver the world-class infrastructure that our people deserves and, frankly, that our country deserves. Does anyone know Steve Liktai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, owns a house in Charlottesville? The gist, we do not own one of the largest wineries in the United States. Then again, contrary to his assertions, neither does Donald Trump. Umperu peru de peru do peru, and thanks for listening.